Okay. Uh, today, my guest is Professor David Griffith. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about David as a person. Professor Griffith is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Griffith is ranked among the top marketing scholars and received various awards for making significant contributions to global marketing. He has also been recognized as one of the most productive scholars in Journal of Marketing and Journal of Marketing Research over the time period uh, 2012 and 2021. He was ranked first worldwide in terms of publication output based on proportional authorship and fifth in terms of citation impact in the international marketing literature between 95 and 2015. In 2017, David was recognized as one of the most prolific scholars in GIPS over the time period 1970 to 2016. In 2010, he was named the rising star for economics and business discipline by Thompson Reuters for his impact in the field. And David is also an award-winning educator Prior to his career in academia, he worked in pension and securities companies where he developed and executed customer relationship management programs and trained employees in pension plan administration. Thank you, David, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thanks. So uh, let's start with the beginnings, early beginnings. Uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Uh, when I was a child, I wanted to become an animator. I grew up on Saturday morning cartoons. And so, uh, you know, I, I was taking art classes and I thought, you know, and this is when when all the animation was still done by hand, you know, that was so cool to be able to do that. And um, un unfortunately, my artistic talent was never there. So <laughs> I kind of ended that career pretty early. Did you come up with a character of your own? Did you develop one? No, no, I was I was always trying to replicate existing characters and um, just wasn't very good at it. I mean, I could never get what was in my mind down on paper. Hmm. Frustrating. Right? Yeah, a little bit frustrating. Yeah, when, <laughs> when your skills limit you, it's a little bit frustrating. Where <laughs> did you grow up? I grew up outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and so I consider myself a Clevelander, um, what we would call as a North Shore kind of guy. Uh, Midwestern. Okay. okay. And uh, how did you choose academia? I chose academia. Um, I had left industry because the hours I was putting in was were just incredibly, they, they were huge. And um, went back for my MBA and John Ryan's, an AIB fellow, um, came up to me after class and he was like, look, David, you might want to think about coming into an academic career. And at that point, I really hadn't thought about doing that. My, you know, I was going to get my MBA and go back into industry. And through conversations with John, it just kind of, you know, his whole thing was you can go into industry and do one thing, or you can come into academia and study whatever you want and work with a lot of different companies. So it became very attractive to me. And um, John was, uh, you know, one of my one of my big mentors. And that's how you went into international marketing. Yeah, he um, he matriculated me into the PhD program um, against apparently some of the faculty at the time who didn't think I was qualified. <laughs> um, but yeah, John, John was a big advocate of mine and then Michael Hu became a big advocate of mine. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I'd always 
from a young age, I'd been interested in international. And then when John and I were talking, it just made perfect sense to me hmm. that this would be a, um, a career that I would enjoy. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Oh, oh, that's always a hard one. Um, I think right now I would probably say, um, and it's horrible to say somewhat, um, I love rom-coms. So uh, I mean, a good romantic comedy is for me just bliss. <laughs> What's your favorite one? Oh, there's so many. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have a favorite one. Um, I, there are a couple like You're Baking Me Crazy um, on Hallmark that um, is just kind of a, a really fun, playful one with Natalie Hall. 50, 51st Dates. Did you watch that one? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was thinking, how does a person come up with the storyline like that? It's <laughs> quite interesting. So uh, if you could do it all over again, mm -hmm. if you could, I mean, if you realize you're always on the uh, creative side and you, you then decide, okay, let me go to the safe, uh, safe version of it. Uh, if you could do it all over again, what's the second best career path for you? What's the second best alternative? Well, okay, so um, I worked for Payne Weber Securities and was a financial analyst um, under two asset managers and had the opportunity to go to their Wall Street office and life took me in a different direction. You know, I, I've always loved the stock market when I grew up with my dad, you know, my dad used to sort of have the, the paper and go through stock prices. So I think if I were to try it again, as a second career, I'd probably go into um, go into the stock market. I, I'd have to go back and get another degree, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but I, I I love the um, the dynamic nature of the market. And there's no reviewer process. <laughs> yeah, there's no reviewer process. But I will say the uh, the penalty for being wrong is a lot harder. <laughs> <clears throat> Okay, regrets other than not choosing uh, stock markets and yeah, not being I'm, Marvel. I'm not a big regret person, I will say. Okay. And uh, what are you most proud of? I, I think my kids. Um, I think I have learned a tremendous amount from being a parent. Um, and I'm really proud of the decisions my kids have made. They're very independent. Um, very independent thinkers. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's, it, it's always been a challenge, but it makes me proud that, that they made good decisions throughout their lives. Academically, do you have any passions? Do you have anything that you're so passionate about uh, professionally? Well, I, I mean, I, I love what I do. I love doing research and I love teaching. Um, there's nothing, you know, to me, there's nothing more exciting than than writing or, you know, going into a classroom. I always find it interesting when I talk to my colleagues and they're counting the weeks down of the semester. Um, I'm kind of counting the weeks down and going, gosh, I hope it doesn't end. I mean, I really, really enjoy what we do. And, and I, and I am truly blessed because I, you know, I, I'm able to teach at all academic levels. Um, and over my career, I've done everything. And, and right now I'm doing undergraduate and our professional MBA and our executive MBA. And to be able to interact with that diversity of student body is, is fabulous. 
And do you work every day for research? Like, do you type every day for? Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm a, I'm an everyday typer. I you know I I do believe in writing every day, and that's seven days a week for the mm -hmm. most part. Um, you know, I I think that it's you know it's our craft in many ways, and I I view myself more as a theoretician um, than a methodologist, and so. You know, being able to explore theory and and try to improve my writing, um, which is a a daily task, I would say. How did you learn to craft papers? Oh, this is a horrible story. <laughs> so um, when I went to the University of Oklahoma, Bob Lush was the editor of the Journal of Marketing, and he was assigned to me as my mentor. And he said, "David, give me some papers. Anything you're working on, you know, let me help." And so I gave him some papers and he came back to me uh, not that long after. And he was like, David, your, 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 your writing is good, but you're not writing about anything important. And so, you know, you need to work on this. And so it was a real eye opener to be an assistant professor at your first job and kind of be, you know, to me, that was a big learning point of the academic writing. I had gone through the PhD program and had published a number of papers, but they were at um, a broader set of journals than target journals, if you will, for the discipline. And at, at Oklahoma, Bob was very much focused on what he considered to be the, the highest quality journals and the type of writing necessary for that. And so I took about a year to study top quality papers, award-winning papers in those journals, um, jibs being obviously one of them, and trying to understand how you construct theory in an academic sense, which was just something we didn't do a whole lot of in my PhD program. Hmm. Or at least I didn't pay attention to it. I'm sure my I'm sure the person who taught me theory would say I didn't pay attention to it. <laughs> <clears throat> not you showed them. <laughs> well, I learned, right? I may be a slow learner, but I'm a learner. <clears throat> about uh, let's talk uh, about research. How do you explain what you do and the importance of your research to people who don't read scholarly work? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty broad, but I would say one of the core things that I study is I study the similarities and differences among people around the world. And you know, my focus has, has always had an element of national culture in it. And I think that there's a beauty in understanding how we can, we can operate more effectively, whether we're individuals or we're businesses by understanding you know, where people are the same and where they're different and how to adjust to those similarities and differences. Omitted variables in IB research. Things that we should have covered more of. Uh, I think, yeah, that's a that's a big one. <laughs> I think that what I see in the literature, especially when you're talking about national culture and how it fits in, right? So a lot of people use institutional economics, you know, the framework of Douglas North, for example. And unfortunately, I don't think they use the framework. I find that we pick and choose variables based upon what's going to be significant. And as such, I don't, I think the omitted variable issue is that we don't apply a holistic framework. So you take culture, for example, someone may use Hofstede's um, approach to culture and pick one or two dimensions and that's all they include. 
and then they throw in GDP or something else rather than using a broader holistic framework, theoretical framework for understanding formal and informal institutional environments. So I think we we see glimpses. It always reminds me of you know the story about touching different parts of the elephant. And I think that if we're not looking at the whole picture through a holistic theoretical framework, that we may not be getting consistent results. True. Actually, let me follow up on that one. People say there are institutions mm -hmm. and then it becomes an institutional paper. No, they, it is not. Uh, they, they say companies use resources, then it becomes a resource-based review paper. It, it is not. Uh, of course, they use resources, but <clears throat> uh, your research is actually quite unique in, in this one. So let me talk about, uh, let's talk about creativity in uh, research and this, uh, your uh, state of idle curiosity, how you come up with the idea and how you execute uh, the, these good, 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 great papers. Okay, so I think he asked two questions in there. So the first one's sort of on creativity. Um, and, and then there's what I view as creativity and then what I view as the creativity process. So I think when I view creativity, I look at it from the standpoint of novelty and meaningfulness, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we have some research that's extremely novel, which is really well, the, sort of the big ideas that move us different places. And then there's meaningfulness, which is I think the vast majority of our research is sort of the incremental um, contributions to it, which I, you know, I think are very important. Um, I think the creative process is quite unique for me. I I'm fortunate to interact with a lot of executives and, you know, by reading popular press and interacting with executives, I'm looking for, for problems, right? How do you help solve, how do you help executives solve problems? And so whether it's in that domain or it's in the theoretical domain where we're seeing problems, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm always interested in things that don't make any sense to me. And so, or things that don't work out. You know, I come from the field of marketing where everyone, you know, I was a, when I was a finance major in my undergraduate, I thought, oh, marketing is so easy, right? It's common sense. But then you see all of the problems, all the difficulties that firms have operating in the marketplace um, from a marketing perspective. And you realize that it's a lot more complex than it is. And so I think mm -hmm. that identifying um, problems, things that make, you know, things that keep you up at night, if you will. Given, let, let's talk about the things that will keep people up at night for the next five to 10 years. Uh, what are those big challenges, social challenges? What, what are the things that we should be looking into in, in research? Well, I think that the big challenges that executives are facing today are issues of sustainability, the impact on society. I think those are absolutely enormous pressures that they're getting from their boards and from their investors. Um, I, I think that the issues of how you incorporate inclusivity has been um, a massive challenge for global firms. I was just talking about this with my executive MBA students. You know, it, it is really, really difficult to operate across 180 countries where the cultural values are so vastly different. And so how do you, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, being, you know, accepting of other cultures, 
But I think that's a very difficult thing to put into practice because some of the cultural aspects are so vastly different. And so I think that the, the, you know, the decisions of where to operate and how to respond to different pressures in different marketplaces um, in a globally connected world. I mean, you go back to the literature in international advertising back in the 60s, and they were talking about spillover effects in Europe from some satellite television. Now you have someone walking through a grocery store in Israel and saying, look, here's Ben and Jerry's. And Ben and Jerry's has said that they're no longer in Israel. So how is this possible? And so you have a more immediacy of communication. And, you know, that becomes a challenge to manage. Do you believe you said uh, we're accepting of other cultures? Do you believe that is the case today? I don't. And I think that, you know, I think that a lot of U.S. multinationals argue for diversity and inclusion and they argue for acceptance. But then when they encounter markets that have very different positions on anything fundamental, women's rights, you really struggle with how you're going to you know, trade off or human rights, how you're going to trade off operating in that country with your core values. And I think it's just, it's massively complex. And I think we oversimplify it too often. Last couple of days, I've been thinking it would be easier. Life would be a lot easier if we were European in Europe doing research on MNCs or IV <clears throat> at different levels of the unit of analysis. Uh, it is completely different for Americans. Plus we have to talk, think about the domestic politics, which is a mess. And uh, then all the lip service that we talk about and give about uh, spillovers and uh, sustainability, those things actually have a thousand different meanings. Yeah. And uh, I think, that, yeah. And, and I don't know if it, you know, I think it's interesting to think about it from a European perspective uh, because, you know, from a European perspective, I, I don't know if there's a European perspective, right? Um, because we, we do see, you know, we see we saw pushback with Brexit, right, against the European perspective, but we're also seeing very, you know, look at Italy today versus Germany today, right? Um, there's that diversity just does not go away, and I, I think that it it is this challenge of for firms to understand their role in the economy, right, um, and and. Yeah, I was telling my EMBA students, we talk so much right now about social responsibility, right? Doing the right thing. And this is not new. I mean, this is not a new discussion. And so I actually have them, I, I give them the Milton Friedman, the social responsibility of the firm in 1970. Look, this is 50 years ago. The reason I'm providing you this is so that you can think about something that had been talked about 50 years ago. And I find that same challenge as a reviewer or an editor at the journals is that sometimes we get papers in and it's clear they haven't read the literature back in the 70s or the 80s because it's mm -hmm. it's old wine and new bottles. You know, oh, they've termed it something else, but there's an entire literature stream that, you know, goes back to the early 70s <laughs> or late 60s. Same thing happened with Meloni 
uh, when you mentioned Italy, that's how I thought about uh, her speech on her little segments is now being circulated. Bambino in Burkina Faso. Yeah. I mean, uh, that has been the history in Europe and uh, now she's rehashing it and very effectively. Yeah. And the way that she's talking is very, very uh, influential actually. Let's see how, how it happens. For, uh, let's talk about that one, about the uh, shift in the culture of IB or global marketing, global uh, uh, platform. How is this evolution happening? Where are we headed to? I know where we came from. Uh, where are we headed to? I wish I knew, to be honest with you, that would be really, really helpful for my own research. Um, I think when I look at the evolution of international marketing within the IB discipline, um, you know, I find that we, you know, we go through waves, right? We have dominant positions, whether those dominant positions are theories or methods or personalities, and, and that that has shaped who's involved in the discipline, um, as well as what topics are studied in the discipline. Um, you know, I come from the I come from the big tent perspective, right? I believe that all methods are valuable in providing us insights on something. You know, in in the IM discipline, we've sort of moved away from what we would call behavioral strategy research or survey based research to secondary data research, and and then we infer motivations from you know actions that have taken place. And I think that, you know, that can be detrimental to the field because I think that everything provides us different insights. And so if we can include more people, more methods, more theories, I think we would have a, a greater understanding that doesn't mean we accept limitations, right? What that means is we need to create rigorous research that can bring different perspectives onto a phenomenon. So multi-method research, for example, can give us greater insights into a phenomenon because we are, I think we should be phenomenon driven, right? I mean, we should be theory driven, but you know, we should really be studying a phenomena and no matter what method you choose, there's gonna be limitations to it. True. <clears throat> My wife, <clears throat> Asla, uh, I mean, she's obviously a strategy and she's uh, very developed in methods, especially methods. And she use, uh, she does these SDR segments on uh, bring any question and uh, let, let me help you. Uh, interviews and uh, recordings. Mm -hmm. And she realized uh, a couple of years ago that the methods are improving and yet Honesty is evaporating. Uh, that they are using, uh, they are using the methods to incorrectly come up to a, a solution. And this is basically, uh, it is more than data torture. Of course, it is uh, confessing. It is just the, the the methods are being used incorrectly, right? Uh, but the power of the method is there. It's just incorrect use. So how is that going to really? Uh, work with this phenomena driven and proof driven and impacts, we're uh, seeking impact for the executive. How is this going to work out? I, I am concerned about the issue of quality of our findings. Okay. 
I'm, I'm concerned about issues of replication of our findings. I do believe that we have, and this is, you know, once again, this is nothing new. We've talked about this forever in our discipline, but we're not doing anything about it, which is the difference between statistical significance and substantive significance. And people are being asked to do methods in the review process, or they're coming up with methods, and they're, they're pushing these to the point where there are very few people who can actually review them. We, we actually, at JIBS, under, our, under the, the current editor team, um, have a methods board. So when stuff comes in that's just incredibly newer, if you will, we can, we can source them and say, look, you know, we're not really 100% confident what they're doing. Can we get an expert opinion on this? You know, and it is a thing of you can, in the, re, you know, in the, in the writing process, you can use a method that you may not even understand, right? I mean, this has always been the problem as we moved from program-based um, languages to drop-down menus in, in graphical user interface statistical programs where you're clicking on boxes and all of a sudden you're getting results and you're not sure what the results are. However, there's, you know, there's a little asterisk by it, so you can have a hypothesis now. Um, and, th and that's a concerning aspect to me. You know, I think we've seen in management and marketing and psychology this reckoning of failure to replicate. I have a, a, one, of our, one of our colleagues, um, Ram Mudambi at Temple, talks a lot about the fact that you know, the best research is on publicly available data because when you have publicly available data, other scientists can try to replicate the work. And I think that's really important. Um, and I'm hoping we're moving a little more to the stage where we can accept, you know, I wouldn't say simple methods, but appropriate methods. Um, that can test the data and can be replicated. Um, and that also gets into the aspect then of transparency in the description of the data, because about five years ago, I started to transition a little bit from more behavioral survey, managerial strategy research in the IB field to secondary data. And when I would read a paper and then go and get that data that they would source, I would notice things such as, you know, they don't talk about how they handled missing data, but missing data is a huge issue in the data set they're using. And, you know, there's, there's a big difference if you're doing mean imputation or you're doing carry forward or carry back um, in terms of what the end results are. And so I, I just think we, we're going to need to be more transparent um, in the review process, one of the things I always stress to authors is write it so it can be replicated, right? Mm -hmm. Be so specific that, that people can actually go in and replicate your data. Mm -hmm. Because the worst thing to have is a paper that you know, you've published that would have to be retracted because you didn't specify something or the findings are wrong. And we don't even have retractions, do we? we, we there are retractions out there. There are retractions. Um, okay. And, and, you know, and that's where you really want robust findings. Um, you know, and, and the retraction issue is, you know, there, there are a lot of papers that um, I think we'd look at to say, you know, what happened to them? You know, and I'm not, you know, and I don't, I just think that sometimes, you know, you do a study, you find something, you move it forward. Our field has been very focused on, on publication. Um, there's a lot of pressure on everyone to publish. 
And, you know, when you go, you know, I, I served six years as editor in chief of the Journal of International Marketing, and you could see papers develop through that. And I've been on the JIBS editorial board for a decade, and now I'm a AE. And, you know, you watch those papers develop and you can, you know, you can see them get stronger, but you can kind of look at the, the analysis as you're going through that too, to make sure that the analysis makes sense. You know, because you are asking people to refine their model, sometimes change their theory. So like one of the questions I always ask is, you know, we talk a lot about harking, right? Post hoc theorization. But how does post hoc theorization as a questionable research practice, how does that align with the review process, which tells you to, uh, to create new theory, test new hypotheses, and then hypothesize those new hypotheses as though that's what you expected. True. So I think it's, it's a challenging world we live in, <laughs> but I think that all of us wanna do good research. And I think you know that, that there's really good research out there and there's no way to ensure that we're seeing capital T truth, but we're seeing little t truth. And the, the more transparency we can have in the process, I think that the more, the greater the likelihood that other scholars will find similar things under similar conditions. Mm -hmm. True. Uh, for the sake of time, let's talk about advice, mentoring. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the best advice you received when you were going to the PhD program? <laughs> to be patient. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you patient? No, I try to be patient, <laughs> but I'm not. It's some it's a skill I've yet to develop, but I'm I'm working on. It's a lifelong, you know, it, it's a long process. I mean, well, from, what's the what are the common mistakes that you see junior faculty and, and uh, patient students usually make? What are some of the things that you routinely see across the board? Uh, things that they do that they shouldn't. Um, I think I think one of the biggest ones is not reading the, the broader literature. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times they come up with an idea because they, you know, they they see the issue and it hasn't been addressed in the last 10 years. And all of a sudden it's an important issue. And then you're like, OK, but we've been talking about this since 1971, you know, um, a Jibs paper. So I think that, you know, not reading the broader literature is one. I think not. I think trying to, and it's one of the hardest skills to learn, which is focusing on bigger topics rather than topics that are just important to you. Because like we look at the literature, we look at what's going on in the world and we see really cool things that excite us. But trying to identify substantive issues for a important stakeholder group, whether that be managers or academics, I think that that is, is something I, I talk to um, junior faculty, doctoral students a lot about. And the last is, you know, to, to your earlier point, we focus so much on method. I think that there is an overemphasis on building a highly sophisticated statistical model and not really thinking about what the meaning of that model is. One of my students last year, his students discovered uh, cultural dimensions. <laughs> but, <laughs> 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 and he said, like, well, I mean, we don't talk about it. Yes, we don't talk about it. And there, there are these, these reasons. And here are the papers. And then he goes and reads about expatriates. He says, oh, you know, 
we don't see that anymore. Yes, we don't. So, uh, and he got frustrated. He got frustrated because he has to read from very early on and make uh, some sort of a, a mental map yeah. of where things are going because these are, he's thinking in linear terms, but give him a data, the, the regular data set, like a home, homework data set, he can just do things with it. He's comfortable doing it. He, the, the thing is, when you're writing a paper, it is not uh, whether you can drop down exactly like the uh, argument you made earlier. Yeah. Uh, maybe drop-down menus were not that good, and I hated uh, state coding or SAS coding, but we actually did learn a lot. Uh, yeah, I think and they I don't think... even. I mean, think about the thing about their uh, uh, the, the tutorials that they don't even go through the tutorials anymore. They just want to get a number, and is it significant? Is it not significant? Yeah, and I think so, that, that I think that that becomes a big problem because you will see people running higher order statistical modeling, and then you you know maybe it's a GLM focused model, right? And all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'd like to see the fundamental descriptive statistics of the variables, and it's things like people don't even check anymore, mm -hmm. you know, or or you're looking at models and you look at a control variable model versus the hypothesized model, and the explained variance is an additional two percent. Right. And like, okay, what are you know? You know, why are we doing this? I understand you've got three asterisks, and it's really, really significant. Um, but if it's only explaining two percent, now you know what's the financial implication of that? Maybe that's important. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I yeah, we you know, and this is the thing. I think we all we all learn along the way for the most part. But I think sometimes we we run fast without looking at the basics. And so if you've got a lot of skewness in your data or kurtosis in your data, you know, and you're not dealing with that, you know, what is, what does that do to the model? What, what are the implications of that for the model you're running? I think your advisor was right about patience. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's the question I should have asked you about Evans? Oh, I think you've asked me every question. I think you've asked me a lot of great questions. Um, no, I, yeah, I, I think that, you know, my, I think the most important thing that I have learned in my career is working with co-authors and trying to manage co-author relationships. At the end of the day, we all have different priorities and it is really, really hard to, um, to manage different people's timetables. And so being patient, being accepting, the review process is long, the research process is long, Everyone has a lot going on in their life. And I think if we, we, can, we can build patience, develop the skill of patience, um, I think we, we'll all be better off at managing those relationships, managing those projects, and um, managing our classes. <laughs> this was very helpful. <clears throat> I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Uh, David, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thank this you. was a very great learning experience. Thanks. I, I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity. You take care.